Tomorrow is Veterans Day, and uh, we want to say thank you to all the men and women who have served in the military uh, from Life Church. Thank you for uh, keeping our country free. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, uh, it, many of you know that Debbie and I were down in, in Florida on vacation, and the way, one of the reasons why I like it there is there's two Air Force bases, one on each side of us where we stay. And so uh, they'll, the Air Force will take their jets out over the ocean and, you know, uh, break the sound barriers. It's pretty dramatic. But I was reminded of when, when you see that is, Lord, that is cool. That is cool. But Lord, we know that unless you protect America, we can have the best military and we could lose. So God, we pray that you will be our protection over our country. It's all about you. How about it? So, um, so anyway, uh, it, it was interesting that last week uh, I saw an article, a C-130, from one of the bases by us. Uh, they were, um, have a parachuting Uh, deal, practice, and one of the guys fell out of the C-130 into the ocean. And for three days, they've had rescue operations out looking for for the man who fell out of the plane. And I saw this morning that they've discontinued uh, searching for him. Now, how would that make you feel? Can I tell you something that it's very possible that you're here this morning and you've fallen out of life. And it feels like God's forgotten about you. But I'll tell you one thing, God will not stop searching for you. He will never give up. He will continue to pursue a relationship with you. And you can go to bed tonight knowing that's a fact. And uh, we just want to encourage you, man, if you're running from God, if you've fallen out on God, you feel like, man, I've messed up so many times, God could never love me. That's a lie. Call on his great name, and he's there to make a difference just for you. As you know, we started a a new series last Sunday in the book of Revelation, the last book, and uh, we're continuing that this morning. We're we're looking at the the second chapter of Revelation, the first seven verses. And so um, in this particular text, it's the first letter... um, written by John, uh, dictated to him by Jesus himself. And there's a total of seven churches. And so on the bottom of your program, there's an outline, there's, uh, there's notes that you can follow along with and track. And we want to encourage you to do that because there's something about staying engaged and participating um, where God can really make himself known to you. But anyway, at the bottom, there's a list of the six other churches We are not going to go over today. That's your homework assignment uh, for the next week, reading through the rest of uh, chapter 2 and into chapter 3. We're going to be modeling uh, just the first church in Ephesus. Why? Because um, that was where John was a pastor, and uh, it's relevant as all the other six churches are for our situation in life today, in 2019, in the United States of America. Why? Because the Bible is relevant year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia. You can count on it. 
And so uh, let's read this morning on the back of on your program. Most of those verses are there for you. So, so um, starting at verse 1, chapter 2. The title of this uh, paragraph, The Message to the Church in Ephesus. We could pause there and say, Lord, what's your message for me this morning? Hmm? Don't, uh, don't put your mind on uh, cruise, you know, drift this morning. Keep it engaged because the Spirit of God wants to speak. And he has a message for you and for me. Verse 1, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, talking about Jesus, and the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Before we pray, just want to let you know uh, the family, we're a family at Live Church, and uh, Robert Reynolds, who plays the guitar up here this morning, you saw him, his wife Jen, their daughter Cameron is having open heart surgery Tuesday. I know it says in your program Wednesday, but he said they called uh, Friday and they bumped it up a day. And so um, early in the morning, she's heading in for a 12 to 14 hour surgery. Friends, I, I want you to pray, you know, uh, that God will bring healing uh, to Cameron's body quickly. How about it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. The opportunity we had to read your word, Lord. Reading and obeying it are two different things. Help us to align both of those together as one. When I hear your word, I obey it. It's automatic. Help us to do that, Lord. I hear it, I obey it. Thank you as you dictated this letter to the Apostle John. Lord, he was obedient in writing every word down. It's accurate, it's trustworthy, it's the truth. We can base our life on it. We pray for Cameron this morning as she goes in for open heart surgery on Tuesday. God, we pray that you will guide the surgeon's hands. This little girl, Lord, you know her well. You know that heart. And we just pray for your help with the doctors. And we pray for a swift recovery, Lord. 
We're asking for your help. What an opportunity we have, Lord, to be able to say, help, Lord, we need your help. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. We pray for Cameron. We place her in your care in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a footnote, too. Kathy Hankel, as you know, is recovering from uh, back surgery at the uh, St. Mary's Care Center in Madison. And, man, if you could send her a card or uh, stop by and say hi, man, that would mean a lot. She's looking forward to getting home. Gorders are coming back from uh, Kenya later on this week. And uh, Bo emailed me this morning, and he said, the ladies from Life Church are having a blast in Israel. <laughs> I've seen some photographs and some videos, and man, it's true, they are. Uh, um, they're having a good time. What a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. When I look upon his face. What a day that's going to be. Help us, Lord, to anticipate that day, not to, um, not to look forward to it. Help us, Lord, to be ready for it. We want to be ready. Awake my soul and sing. Sing his praises. It's good. Lord, we praise you this morning. We worship you this morning, Lord. We are created by you. We were knitted together by your hand. We are dearly loved by you. There is not one person in this room that is a mistake or a second thought by you. You purposed each one of us, Lord. You created us on purpose and with a purpose. And I pray that the mighty hand of God, the right hand of God would rest upon each one of our shoulders this morning, that we will sense the weight of that hand. We're not here by mistake. God, you want to do something individually today. And if some of us came in here because we had to, or we're trying to impress you, God, will you forgive us? Help us, Lord, to pursue you 
as you have pursued us. Amen. Vern Brewer is a, uh, he leads a Christian ministry. He's a uh, Christian writer. He um, wrote an article last week. Uh, last Sunday, by the way, was the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And I want to tell you something, man. There's a lot of followers of Christ that are being persecuted around the world today. And he writes about this one Chinese pastor that became his hero over the years. He was reflecting on this man and his life story. He was threatened, beaten, tortured for sharing the gospel, but he never wavered in his devotion to Christ. His name was Samuel Lamb. And um, Vern talks about the time that he met him for the first time where Vern flew to China. Uh, Samuel was one of the well-known house church leaders uh, in a city of three million people. He lived in a tiny apartment up on the third floor. Um, he endured more than 21 years of prison for his faith because he refused to register his church to the Chinese government. Uh, Fifteen of those years were hard labor, working in a coal mine, as punishment for trying to make a copy of the New Testament. Some of you this morning even brought your Bibles to church. What a privilege that is. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some on the back table. They're free. I encourage you to grab it and read it. Vern says when he arrived at uh, Samuel's house for the first time, the, the meeting had just concluded and people were filing down a narrow stairway from the third floor into the darkness and As he waited, he wondered, how could all those people fit into that tiny little apartment? You know, they just kept coming and coming. And finally, uh, when he had the opportunity, he made his way up that three flight of stairs, and he reached the Samuel for the first time. They hugged, and Samuel, of course, had a huge smile on his face. And Vern says, I walked into the room, and I noticed this table with 20 uh, Chinese young people sitting there writing. And... Uh, just a footnote, nearly 80% of the congregation is comprised of young people who are hungry for the Word of God. And they're eager to tell their friends about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Vern said, when I got in, I saw these 20 young people at a table writing. He asked them, what are they doing? He said, they're making handwritten copies of the Gospel of John to give to their friends at school tomorrow. We only have one Bible at a time, so we must make copies. I thought to myself, Vern says, that would never happen in America. Looked around the apartment, man, the walls were blown out, and uh, there were wooden benches everywhere, and in the corner, the far corner of the room, he saw a single bed, a little refrigerator, and a hot plate. That was the living quarters for Samuel Lamb. Pastor Lamb said he started preaching when he was released from prison, and he said, man, the church grew, and it grew, and concerned authorities stormed one of the meetings, uh, and they arrested me, and, and um, 
uh, confiscated all the Bibles and the hymnals, and he said, for three days I was interrogated, I was beaten, I was tortured, and I was told, when we release you, you need to go back and close down that church. It's over. It's finished. So Vern says, well, what did you do? He said, well, that following Sunday, I, I stood up in the church, and I told the congregation what the police said. Um, so the following Sunday, our church attendance doubled. He said, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Vern says, you know, there's five different services in, in Lamb's apartment every week. 1,500 people show up. Hmm. So I asked uh, Pastor Lamb, how did you survive all those years in prison? And he said, I quoted scripture that I had committed to memory and I composed songs to sing to Jesus. Awake my soul and sing. We sang that, didn't we? You think he had awakened his soul? He said, um, pray for us, though, because we don't know about tomorrow. We don't know when tribulation will come. Pray that our people might have strength to face persecution. I I thought you were going through persecution. People are threatened by the government with no salary or no job. If they attend the meetings, you lose your job. You lose your income if you go to church there, by the way. But they still come. Please don't pray for the persecution to stop. Okay. Okay. Vern says every time I went there, I, there were a few Bibles people had. People crowded around and peered over the shoulders of those who held the Bible just to follow along while they were reading it. On many occasions, I saw people holding crumpled, torn pieces of paper, and I realized they were pages torn out of the Bible and shared in the group. It's not done out of disrespect for the Bible, but the unquenchable desire to have a small portion of their very own Bible. Do you understand, friends? We leave ours on the shelf for a week. They're good dust collectors, aren't they? I was blessed to call Pastor Lamb, my friend. He was beaten, tortured, and his faith never wavered. Every time I was with him, he had a smile on his face and a song in his heart. He was God's gift to the underground church in China. May we, as Christians, be found as faithful as my friend, Samuel Lamb. Talking about the church in China, they... They are definitely hitting persecution, very similar to the persecution that was going on in Ephesus. We're, 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 uh, we can't talk about the persecution in America. It's nowhere where Ephesus was, so that's why we hit China, okay? And um, the seven churches, we hit this last Sunday, but let's, let's take a look um, uh, at, the, at a map here. So... Turkey, modern-day Turkey, a GNC right here. Um, Ephesus right off the coast. So, so John's writing these letters to the churches, and, and, um, 
and writing down everything Jesus tells him to write. Specific letters on the bottom of your, of your notes, again, you see the, the, the main thoughts um, the, uh, to, the, to those churches. And um, uh, each one has a unique um, identification that Jesus uh, has outlined in challenging those places. So, uh, the first letter we're, we're hitting uh, at Ephesus, it's right off the Aegean Sea. Um, the messenger carrying the, car- the, the dude that carried the letter from John, he would have landed in Ephesus, so that's why, uh, one of the reasons why we're hitting it first. And uh, So number one in your program notes, Jesus showing up. Verse one, Jesus showing up. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. So at the start of the letter, John is writing what Jesus said. And Jesus is describing himself as he is the one that is holding the seven stars and in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here's the deal. Jesus doesn't just show up in church and stand in the back, you know. He walks among the churches. Do you realize even right now that Jesus is walking up and down the aisles right here in this auditorium? And he's stopping and he's looking at your face and he's looking into your eyes because he sees everything that's going on on the inside. Jesus knows. And so we see these seven lampstands are, are those seven churches. And we hit this last week, Revelation one twenty. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, so Jesus is showing up and I'm glad he shows up. We need him to show up. Lord, we thank you for your presence because without your presence, we're just wasting our time. You know, it's true. Lord, we want you to show up. We need him to show up in our lives. Number two, Jesus knows. Verse two, I know all the things you do. Jesus says, I know all the things you do. Some of you this morning, you're playing this game of cat and mouse with with God. You think you can sin at will. You can compromise your life at will and God doesn't really care and God really doesn't know. Well, that's not true. That is not true. Jesus is saying, I know all the things you do. God is fully aware of what's going on in your life. All the dark places, all the lonely places, he knows. And as I was going over these notes, my mind went to Psalm 139 because (laughs) David recognized the greatness of God. Look at verse 1. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know. Are you catching the theme here? He knows. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand 
a blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. And he goes on to talk about verse 15, watching as God knitted him together in his mother's womb. Think about that. You saw me. You are still with me. And then he concludes that chapter, which is a good prayer for all of us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. When was the last time you asked God to point out anything in your life that offends him? When was the last time that happened? There is something about having a relationship that's transparent where God already knows what's going on, but Lord, I'm giving you permission to let me know. I'm not going to fill my mind with noise and busyness, but Lord, I'm going to sit quietly and allow you to speak back to me. Is there anything in my life that's offending you? Let me know. Let me know. Why? Because I want to deal with it. Jesus knows. He knows you and he knows me and he knows everything. So he continues, I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But in this But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Now Jesus is saying, I know everything about you church. He knows everything about life church. You're part of the body of Christ, you individually. You are part of his church. Church at Ephesus, he says there's good points, some bad points, and there's some things I want you to work on. And this thorough examination of the church, he offers a diagnosis for it. Aren't you glad for that? Yeah. So these are the items Jesus is putting out in front of the church at Ephesus. Man, you guys really tore it up good. Number one, hard work. Verse 2a, I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work. Okay, hard work doesn't get you into heaven. When you put your faith in Christ, you want to work for the Lord. That's an overflow out of your appreciation for everything he's done for you. I want to serve the Lord. You know. James 1.22, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. So are you, are you doing what God's word says? Well, the church at Ephesus was busy caring for the sick. They were sheltering the homeless. They were feeding the hungry. They were visiting prisoners. They were clothing widows and orphans. They were representing Christ in their community. And Jesus said, I saw that. Well done. Number two, patient endurance. Verse 2b, and your patient endurance, you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Our culture today, man, it gets tough. We, we abort the mission, you know? Must not be God's will, man. It's too hard, right? That's the mentality today. 
That is not what was going on in Ephesus. That is not what's going on in the church in China. God promises to be with us when things get tough. And he will prove himself if we allow him. That word patient, by the way, means to bear up under a load. We're not good at bearing up under loads. God help us to do that. So this could be translated to persevere under difficult circumstances with a steady determination to go on. You've heard me say this many times, but I am determined to finish strong in my walk with Christ. When I go to the finish line, I don't want to be crawling on my knees with my head looking back. I want to, I want to run and I want to finish strong. And we need to tell, we need to talk about that to each other and to ourselves. Awake my soul. David's talking to his soul. Wake up. Snap out of that slumber. We need to talk to ourselves. I'm going to finish strong, man. We need to be committed to that because Jesus is endorsing patient endurance. Man, they were... Ephesus not only had the goddess Diana there, and and she was known as the Asian goddess of the world at that time. People from around the world would come and worship her. Also, Rome had made an influence, and so every year, Caesar's statue would be placed out in the public ground, and people, the the city would come, and they would stand at attention, and they would declare, Caesar is my Lord. You couldn't do that in your bedroom. You couldn't do it online. You couldn't text it in. You had to be there in purpose. Why? Because you were being watched. And if you did not support Caesar is Lord, guess what happened to you? Well, you were maligned, you were slandered, you were boycotted, you were abused. But they, they, the church, endured. That's great news. Despite this persecution, the Christians in Ephesus persevered. The third thing Jesus is endorsing is, verse 2, See, I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered they are liars. But this is in your favor, verse 6. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Jesus is saying to the church, you are doctrinally sound. You know how to discern truth from error. There were shady spiritual leaders that traveled from congregation to congregation in the early church claiming to be apostles or prophets. And they would, they would come in and say, yeah, I'm a, an apostle from the Lord. And thus says the Lord. And they would go off. And, of course, they would try to get a following and they would try to get money behind it. And so people would say, well, uh, who sent you? And they'd say, well, I don't need human credentials. God sent me. You see, they're using the God card to intimidate. Jesus said, I recognize these false teachers, these false prophets, and you guys put them to the test. And you were fully aware 
of this false teaching that was going on. It's in, I've, I've just been going through the book of Jeremiah myself, and Jeremiah would hear from God, and then God would say, go tell the people. And he, he, Jeremiah would come in and say, hey, hey, the Babylonians are coming. They're coming. We don't want to hear that. And then you had these false prophets that said, Jeremiah is lying. He doesn't know what he's talking about. The Babylonians aren't going to come. And the people said, that's what we want to hear. So that was going on in Ephesus, and you want to know something? That's going on today in our culture. And we'll zoom in a little bit closer, as Jesus does in verse 6, talking about the Nicolaitans. Jesus says, but if this is your favor, you hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, I hate the Nicolaitans. He says, I hate the evil deeds which you've heard the statement, you love the sinner but hate the sin. Who are these people, the Nicolaitans? Well, they were a group that followed Nicholas of Antioch, and this was their message to the church. Live any way you want because you're a believer under grace. Sin it up, baby. And a lot of people jumped on board and said, man, that's, that's the kind of religion I want. I can live my life the way I want to, you know? Do you understand that in, in America, there is a, a very popular teaching going on in the church that fits this description right here? God has grace God has forgiven you. You can can live your life however you want because you've been forgiven. Go live it up. That is a popular teaching in the church today. I personally know people that have left their home church and fallen off into that kind of teaching. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've heard me talk about him, wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship. It's a great book. And in it, he has a chapter on cheap grace. And it says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about costly grace. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap. For us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. I say yo to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm not into cheap grace. And Jesus commended the Ephesian church that they worked hard, they persevered under tough times, 
that they discern truth over error. And I want you to know something, man, as you already know, today our world is drowning in a culture of blind tolerance to sin. My. Number three, Jesus confronts. Verse four, what's the first word Jesus uses here? Go ahead and speak it out. You have to speak into the microphone, man. Come on. But, but. So, so Jesus, uh, you know, you kind of think, well, what could he have against the church after he's patting them on the back? And here, here's the cool thing. Here's the cool thing. Jesus confronts. Why? Because he loves the church. Why does Jesus confront you? Why, is, why does the Spirit of God convict you? Because he loves you. That's why. As a parent, do you let your kids play wherever they want? Go out to the street, man. Go out there. Get hit by a truck. Have a blast. Do we tell them to do that? Hey, man, go get addicted on some drugs, man. Go ahead. Go ahead. Become an alcoholic, man. Go for it. You know, everybody's doing it today. Yeah. No. As a parent, we've seen the heartache of people that have done that very thing. The price that the family pays for those kind of choices. And so a parent who loves will confront. Right? A God who loves will confront, and he surely loves you because he knitted you together. He loves and he confronts. Why would he let you just drift, 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 drift away from him without saying a word? Hmm? That's not God. No, he confronts because he loves. You don't love me? For each other as you did at first, look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Jesus confronts. So, the last couple of weeks, there's a Christian entertainer uh, that's kind of, his lifestyle's kind of hit the fan. Uh, the things he did in dark are coming into the light. Ed Stutzer Christian author, speaker, wrote this article. He puts his name in there. Heed the warning, run towards holiness, rest in Christ. Like many Christians, I've tweeted my share of blah, blah's videos. I'm disappointed. His confession to engaging in what he terms as reckless behavior that violated his own Christian beliefs, convictions, and values. Disappointed, yes. But unfortunately, my ability to be surprised by these stories ran out long ago. Apparently, there is no end to the public failures of Christian leaders and influencers. Simultaneously, we can see that Jesus seems to be doing a good house cleaning of his church. And for that part, I am glad. Yet it's painful. I'm glad that our sins and darkness are being brought to the light. Yes, I'm sorry the world is seeing our dirty laundry. I'm sorry that... This may strengthen the negative views of the church for many. But if this is how it has to happen, then it must be so. 
Bringing the darkness to light is the first step toward healing and the first step toward change. All of this sinful behavior reminds me of the reality of sin. It makes me remember that no part of our lives is out of God's sight. God does not overlook what we do. What's happening in many places in the church today reminds me a bit of C.S. Lewis' satire, The Screwtape Letters, another great book. In it, the senior demon Screwtape is teaching his nephew Wormwood how to use Christians to lead people away from God. In it, Screwtape writes, it does not matter how small the sins are provided, that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light, capital L, and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. End of quote. Stetzer writes, that's why we must hear and heed the warnings, because this kind of failure should indeed frighten us. We should indeed fear our own failings, and that fear should drive us to Christ, to repentance, to accountability, and to more. It is easy to think that we would never fail. That's the safe place for us to live, but we have to guard ourselves. Countless have and will fall. Many are doing so right now in the darkness of their own homes and their shielded lives. A sober understanding of Scripture and our sinful state teaches us to expect failure, and that's why we have accountability. And guardrails. In the early days of humanity, God reminded the people in Genesis 4 that sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. When we continually seek to live in our own power, we have lost the only defense we have against it, God's Holy Spirit in us. And he continues in Genesis 4, 7, but you must rule over it. You, me, we must rule over sin. We are left with one crucial reminder, and that is there was Jesus. Jesus, our faithful high priest who always lives to pray for us. The author and perfecter of our faith, the head of the church, the forgiver of sins, the ultimate judge of all. Yeah. It, it, this is serious, man. Jesus confronts. He doesn't say you've lost your first love. Love is something you don't, you don't lose. It's something you leave. You leave it. The word here implies a process that happens over time. It's erosion that takes place. The erosion of a love that began at conversion begins to erode over time. Nobody wakes up suddenly in the morning and says, I don't love Jesus anymore. That doesn't happen. No. It happens over years when there's hardships and there's questions that don't get answered and there's trials. It's just a hammering away of life. And we stop spending time in God's presence and our hearts become hardened and bitter. And 35 years earlier, Paul had written to this church in Ephesus, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. 
Now, 35 years later, this church is struggling in loving Christ. In the Greek, that word first emphasizes to mean you have left behind your love, the first one. The first one. You've left it. And so now Jesus gives us some tips on what we can do to get away from this drifting, this erosion that's taking place in our relationship with him. He says, first of all, look back. Verse 5a, look how far you've fallen. Look how far you've fallen. I know we're not supposed to camp out in the past, but Jesus is saying we need to go back in the history books and remember when we first put our faith in Christ, the passion that we had and the love we had for God's people and the desire to be with God's people. We need to remember that. Number two, repent. Turn back to me. Repent, changing your mind. Repentance is a true inward change, not a merely outward modification of your behavior. There's stuff going on on the inside. Lord, I am committed to this change. John himself wrote in 1 John 1, 9, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. We confess that sin to him. And three, repeat, verse 5c, turn back to me and do the works you did at first. Jesus is reminding us to repeat what we did. Get back to the Bible, read it. Get back to prayer, talking to God and listening to God telling others about Jesus. We need to do these things even if we don't feel like it. (laughs) So many people are driven by their feelings. We need to take the initiative. I will do this. Number four, we're going to be removed. Verse 5D, if you don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. What that means is for Jesus to remove a lampstand from its place, the church would cease to be a church. And he's saying, don't put your life on spiritual cruise control. Do you realize that in America, 10,000 churches close their doors every year? Think about that. 10,000 churches are closing their doors in America every year. Jesus says, I will take your lampstand out. Why? Because he's not the focus. He's not the focus. Lord, we don't want that to happen. We will pursue you. And number four, it's decision time. Verse seven, anyone who with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life and the paradise of God. So after commending the church at Ephesus for his strengths and its concern for their weaknesses, Jesus is extending a promise to those who are victorious. Hmm. Number one, listen, he says, listen. This is in every one of the seven churches' letters. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit 
and understand what he is saying to the churches. Those who hear what is read should listen to what the Spirit is saying in order to do what the Spirit of God wants them to do. Then we'll be victorious. Listen and do. Number two, victory food. (laughs) Victory food. Verse 7b, to everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Who has victory? Well, John wrote 1 John 5, 4 and 5. He says, for every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He oh, oh, oh. I forgot the rest of the oh, oh. Woo! Victory in Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. He bought me. And he saved me with his redeeming blood. Aren't you glad for that? Victory. That's something the church needs, man, to taste victory. And the Badgers almost gave it away yesterday. Doggone it. It's fun to win. How many of you like to lose, man? Oh, man, I love it. Oh, that's so cool. That's so awesome. And the devil's just having a heyday. Come on. Jesus created you to walk in victory. He's given you everything you need to walk in victory. You can read 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 and 2 Corinthians 5, 10. It talks about the rewards that you'll receive. But right here, Jesus is saying... Here's a promise for every believer. It's victory food. Everybody's going to get it. Going back to Revelation 2.7, to everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life and the paradise of God. This is the same fruit that goes back to the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Right in the middle of the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were created, The tree of life is right there. Let's take a look at it. Genesis 2.9. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from from the ground. Trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. Uh, I had had an apple last night, man. That was really good. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And guess what? After Adam and Eve sinned, humans were not allowed to be in that garden. Genesis 3.24, after sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Now here's the deal. Jesus promises... For those who believe in him, this is the promise, that they will have the right to eat from the tree of life. 
Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street, just right up the hill here. On each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. There's the promise. Can you imagine the tree that was planted in the Garden of Eden is the same tree in Revelation 22 that we're going to be able to eat the fruit from? Victory fruit. The man Jesus wants, he's desiring this morning as he looks into our eyes, how's that relationship with him going? Has it grown cold? Has it eroded over time? Have you been drifting from him? Well, I want to encourage you to stop making excuses, man. Today, today, drive a stake in the ground and say, today, I'm not going to let the drifting and erosion take place any longer. No more. And second, you're going to take a step at a time. A step at a time. How do you do that? You take a step at a time. Just one step. One step towards God, man. You pursue it. It's like this one man who became very transparent. He says, I had one appointment I could never keep. And that was the one about reading my Bible on a regular, consistent basis. I made sure I kept my appointments with everybody else, but with Jesus, I was never on time. How sad is that? And one of his buddies recognized that something had changed in him, in Darren's life, and so he said, well, what'd you do about it? He said, I finally got on track with a steady, quiet time with God by doing three things. Having a plan, setting a time, and having a place without interruption. So we're taking a step at a time. This, is, this can be the, the tipping point for your life this morning. Having a plan, a Bible reading plan, setting a time, and having a place where you're, you're not interrupted. That, that's a good place to start, right? And the Spirit of God has been speaking, I believe, to each one of us this morning. How is your relationship with him? Is it healthy? Would Jesus come and say, hey, I'm putting my arm around you. Man, it's cool here, but this is something you need to work on. I'm going to confront you about this issue in your life. You need to deal with it. No more procrastinating. No more making excuses, man. Let's get on with it. Time is short. Don't walk out this morning and say, I'll get to it next week or a month from now, but deal with it right here and right now. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity we've had to read this letter that was written over 2,000 years ago. And God, we thank you that we're able to read it. And not only read it, but we're able to obey it. You empower us to obey your word. And we thank you that you've taken us behind the curtain to look at the church at Ephesus. To see, man, they struggled. Help us, Lord, to be honest with you.
as you are honest with us. To say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. I will pursue you all the days of my life. We thank you. We thank you for speaking to us this morning. And in the quietness of this hour, will you build that altar with you and God? As he has spoken to you, you can speak to him. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I will. I will commit to reading your word consistently. I will commit to spending time with you consistently. I I commit to that, Lord, here and now. say yes to you, Lord. Yes, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.